Welcome to the Seeking Pearls podcast. My name is Rebecca Meidinger. It is wonderful to be here today with you. We are continuing our journey this summer through the letter of 1 Peter. It is a slow journey because I am not succeeding in making very much time for podcasting. I'm doing a lot of Bible study. I'm just having a hard time getting to my basement in a quiet space to do my podcasting. And uh, so it's been it's been drawn out and it has um, been taking longer than I thought. But I am here today. I'm excited that the Lord just opened up this window of opportunity for me this afternoon where I find myself in a quiet basement and I can do a little podcasting. I think for chapter three, I'm actually going to do this all in one podcast. Chapter three of First Peter is, if you're familiar with it, it is a very challenging chunk of scripture. The whole chapter, <laughs> it's just very difficult. There's a lot of things in it that I don't understand and a lot of things that perhaps you don't understand either. And if you are, if you were wondering, like if you've been following along the podcast, wondering like, is she ever going to post uh, chapter three? Because I think it's been two weeks maybe <laughs> since I recorded and posted. So if you ever, if you were thinking, is she ever going to get around to chapter three? You might have been thinking that I was trying to avoid it. <laughs> I wasn't actually trying to avoid it. It is very, very challenging. Uh, I just am struggling to get down to my basement. That's all. But um. It's, it's a challenging chunk of scripture, but I think there is beautiful things for us to take from it and to learn through it together, step by step, verse by verse, studying each word. I think that we can take great things from this difficult chunk of scripture. The commentary that I ordered is from David Pawson, who is British, and I, I really enjoy his work. He's just really kind of a straight shooter. I appreciate him a lot. And I think he's actually passed away now. But I found this one thing that I do want to share, though, before we start, though. And I, I really appreciated this. He's just talking about the challenges of First Peter chapter 3. And he has a great thing to say about studying the Bible and the, these hard passages in the Bible. He says, The advantage of going straight through a letter is that you have to tackle the difficulties and you can't jump over them and give out another text. I love that he calls that an advantage. <laughs> That's an advantage of going straight through the text is that we have to tackle all the things that are difficult. Um, he goes on to say, There are certain principles of understanding the Bible. The first is that you will never really get the truth out of the Bible unless you're prepared not only to read it, but to study it. The Bible itself tells you to study, to show yourselves approved to God, handling aright the word of God. That is from 1 Timothy. Peter, at the very beginning of this letter, has said, gird up your minds, which in modern English would be, tighten the belt around your minds, roll up the sleeves of your minds. In other words, get down to a bit of thinking. You will never understand the Bible until, until you learn to really dig and think. A second rule for understanding the Bible is to take the Bible in its plainest, simplest meaning, even if it seems a bit strange to you. Don't try and twist the words around. Don't try and look for some hidden meaning. Just take the words at the first and plainest, simplest meaning and see where that leads to you. And then rule number three is to look at the context. That means if you have a verse or a text you don't understand, look at the verses in front of it and the verses after it. Look at the chapters it's in, look at the book that it's in, and say, what is this all about? What is the subject 
talking about, and then you will understand the text. So I just really appreciated that. I love that he said, it's an advantage of going straight through verse by verse is that we don't skip the hard stuff. So today we're not going to skip the hard stuff. We are going to dive right in. And he starts with hard stuff immediately. Chapter 3, verse 1, and it's already hard. <laughs> okay? So I just want to point out that as chapter 3 starts, he's talking to wives. Some of you listening are women who are not married. And one thing that's been helpful that a lot of my commentaries did point out is that the words that are written here are specifically to wives. He's going to tell wives to submit to their husbands. And commentary after commentary made a point of saying that this is not telling women to submit to men. This is for wives to submit to their own husband. So in the context of my life, it is not telling me to submit to all men. It's telling me, Rebecca, be submissive to Paul. But we need to hold on because as we keep reading, we're going to see that there are um, instructions for the husband as well. All right. So that's really important. So before I begin, though, I want to say one thing that I've learned recently is through through different book studies I've done as I've been studied more about about the Apostle Paul recently and I, I read a lot of biographies on Paul and also as I have been studying more about the role of women in the, in the early church one thing I've learned is that these household codes that we find written in Ephesians Colossians we're going to read it here in first Timothy or first Peter chapter 3 you see some of it in first Timothy when, when we see in scripture these household codes written about the instructions of how to treat each other, how to live, how to submit to one another, uh, including, so husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves, and masters, those are kind of the three breakdowns of the household codes. What I've learned is that those were actually quite common throughout the Roman Empire, really started by Aristotle, would send out household codes throughout the empire, and the purpose of them was really to get households in line with the patriarchal society to make sure that everybody was obeying the man of the house, that children were submissive to the man of the house, that wives were submissive to the man of the house, that slaves were submissive to the man of the house. And so so the household codes were sent out to really make sure that the the Roman Empire at large continued its patriarchal society design. When the Apostle Paul and the uh, and Peter and uh, the biblical writers started also including household codes writing to the new believers in the churches throughout the Roman Empire, they did include household codes, but they were revolutionary because they did not include only instructions for the wives, children, and slaves. They also included instructions for the husbands, dads, and masters of those slaves. So there were now instructions for, yes, women are going to be called to submit to their husbands, but husbands have a role to love and honor and cherish their wives. In this passage that we're going to read, Peter's going to go so far to say as husbands, God is not going to listen to your prayers if you're not considering your wife, if you're not taking care of her. So we'll get there in a minute, but these are bold things that are being written to the men as well about their behavior. It's going to tell children, yes, to honor your father and mother, just like it does in the Ten Commandments. But here, the New Testament writers are going to take it a step further, and they're going to say, parents, do not embitter your children. Do not discourage your children. 
And and then to, for the slaves, it's yes, we talked about that last week. It was it's so difficult for us to wrap our minds around that about slaves being submissive to your masters. But uh, in especially Ephesians and Colossians, the instructions to the master is as well to be gracious to your slaves and and to remember. I love this in Colossians. It says that with the Lord there is no favoritism. It says the Lord is watching you and he's talking to the masters like the Lord is watching what you're doing and watching how you treat your slaves and be gracious to your slaves because the Lord does not show favoritism. And so so these household codes, we read them and we're like, oh my goodness, they're telling us how to act and they're telling us how to treat our husbands and sometimes we can get kind of upset about it. But we have to understand they were normal in the day, these household codes. And the way the New Testament writers were writing them was revolutionary by giving instructions to the husbands, to the dads, and to the masters. Often in many households, most households, that is one person, the husband, the dad, and the master of the slaves. He was getting instruction as well on how to treat and love and care for those who are in his care. So let's go on. First Peter chapter 3 Verse 1, wives in the same way, okay, what is the same way? It's the same way as he's already told the slaves to submit to their masters and and just to remember that um, Jesus suffered for our sake. And so um, if you find yourself in a relationship uh, that is imbalanced, just uh, that's the same way that he's talking, like, we submit to your husbands. And specifically what he's talking about here is if you find yourself married to somebody who has not come to Christ. So the people he's writing to are people who heard the gospel at some time in their adult life, more than likely. They already were married and with kids. And if the wife came to Christ and the husband has not yet come to Christ, uh, and then the woman is being, um, uh, maybe she is being, slandered because of that. Maybe she is being mocked because of that. Peter here is giving her encouragement and strength through that. So through that, wives in the same way submit to yourselves to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they might be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. So the Apostle Paul writes the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's writing to married couples who one of them has come to Christ and the other one has not come to Christ. And he says the same thing. Uh, If you have come to Christ and your spouse has not come to Christ, he says, stay married, submit to them in love, uh, be loving towards them, and perhaps that person will come to Christ through you, through your actions as they watch you live your life. Uh, that person may come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And the way that Peter words it here is when they, when they, the husband, sees the purity and reverence of your life. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 adds on to that, though, that if the unbelieving spouse decides to leave that the believing spouse is free to let them go. Uh, So we know that divorce breaks the heart of God, but we also know that the reason it breaks the heart of God is because it breaks our hearts and God hurts alongside of us. And we don't need undue guilt hanging over us 
that's not helpful or beneficial. It doesn't build us up in Christ at all. And so the Apostle Paul writes, like, if your unbelieving spouse is going to leave you, you have freedom to let that person go. Um, you don't need to feel guilt or shame or embarrassment about that. You, you have freedom to let that person go if the unbelieving spouse insists on leaving. So that is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But if the believing spouse wants, or the unbelieving spouse wants to stay here, that wife is asked to submit to the husband and and let her life and her actions and the purity of her life let that minister to the husband. It's not necessarily through the words that she is called to minister to her husband. Although of course we know through all of through studying the whole scriptures that we need words to preach the gospel. But also, especially in this marriage relationship, Peter is encouraging the wife to let her life speak louder than her words as she ministers to her husband. And then in verse 3, he goes on and he says, now this is a highly debated verse, but I'm going to give you my thoughts on it. <laughs> he says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, your beauty should be that of an inner spirit the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. All right, so it says your beauty should not come from outward adornment. He does not say that we can't use outward adornment. There is no problem whatever in the pages of scripture with a woman wearing jewelry, doing her hair, wearing pretty clothes. <laughs> like that's totally permissible. What he's saying here is don't rely on that alone to draw your husband. Like the beauty that your husband is going to see because we're in it for the long haul, right? Marriage is about the long haul. And so at first, perhaps your husband was drawn to those earrings and the makeup and the clothes. At first, he might have been drawn to that outward physical appearance, but that is not going to get you through the long haul. And especially as you are ministering to your husband so if we're still putting this in, in the context of a believing wife and an unbelieving husband if you are talking about winning your husband to christ we know that it's not going to be outward things on in you that change your husband's heart ultimately of course it's the holy spirit that changes his heart but it's as he watches the inner life in you as he sees the inner beauty that is being developed and growing inside of you as he sees the fruits of the spirit grow inside of you as he sees christ soften your heart soften your attitude as he sees uh, the joy and the peace of god radiate from through from the inside out that is the beauty that is going to draw him unto christ also i just want to say i just want to remind us i think i've brought this up before the culture that this is written in is steeped in temple prostitution. When women were living their lives as temple prostitutes for all of the false gods that were in the Roman and Greek culture, they they did. They, they adorned themselves with immense makeup and jewelry and fine clothes and hairstyles. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is giving kind of this confusing speech about about women covering their hair when they go to worship. The reason for that was because uh, the temple prostitutes did not cover their hair. 
I mean, they they used all of their body in very sensual ways to attract men who came to the temples of those false gods. And so the Apostle Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to the Christians and saying, women, we want, please cover your hair in worship. You need to cover your hair in worship. Why? So that people are not confusing you in any way whatsoever with one of the temple prostitutes. And, and it was just a simple way to, to help stave off any confusion or any slandering that would go against that young woman. So it's kind of a similar thing. So Peter might be addressing that a little bit too, that, that it's not that beautiful clothes and beautiful hair are bad. They're certainly not bad. But don't, don't flaunt that. Don't let that be what you flaunt. In fact, don't flaunt anything. Because even, even the inside, inner self, uh, the unfading beauty of a woman uh, should not be faunt, flaunted. It's a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, let me tell you, I don't think I have a gentle and quiet spirit. <laughs> I think that anyone who knows me I don't know. I might have listeners that don't know me. I'm not really sure. That's the funny thing about podcasting. I have no idea who's listening. But um, I think that the people who know me would probably say she is not gentle and she's not quiet. <laughs> I'm really neither of those things. But I will tell you, I want to be. And I also will tell you that I think, I think that I'm growing towards that. I think my spirit is getting gentler and not quiet like quiet because I'm actually pretty loud but quiet as in calm like think of like a quiet stream like it's calm it's not easily like it doesn't get disturbed super easily it's not it's not turbulent all of the time it's quiet and it's calm and it's steady like a steady river so it's not about the Lot, like what quiet here I don't think is about loud or quiet. I think it's about calm or turbulent. And I think that my spirit is growing calmer uh, and gentler, but it is a slow process for me. And when I see women who, who are gentle and quiet spirits, I admire them so much. I am drawn to them. I want to be like them. I tend to uh, just kind of stare at them, not like in a freaky way, but just like in a way where I'm like, oh, you have a gentle and quiet spirit and I could, I, it's, it is so beautiful and I could, I could stare and just like take it in because I want that. I want that gentle and quiet spirit. I'm very drawn to it. And so I think God is working in me on that. <laughs> I hope. I pray about that. All right. Then in verse 5, he says, For this is the way holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. Now, I made a list because this really trips me up. I don't want us to think that this means that these women don't have chutzpah, for lack of a better word. So chutzpah, I've talked about before. If you followed the series on women of the Bible, I talked about chutzpah in a lot of them. It's a Hebrew word that is spelled C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H. And it is a word that means like power and boldness, courage, and uh, it's not self-seeking. It is for the good of others. It is for the glory of God. It's not like a self-seeking boldness. It is 
a boldness to do the right thing. Uh, and so the women of the past, the, these holy women that verse 5 is talking about, the holy women of the past who put their hope in God, they were not doormats, okay? That's the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, being Having a gentle and quiet spirit does not mean having a doormat spirit. It doesn't mean just going along with whatever and being passive. By no means, not one of these women that I put on this list are passive at all. <laughs> but these are the holy women of the past that I think he must be referring to. So I think of Leah, who was the first one who was married to Jacob, and she bore him four boys, and she kept trying to win Jacob's love, and Jacob was not giving her his love because he was so in love with Rachel, her her sister. And on baby number four, which happens to be Judah, which happens to be the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, on that baby, Leah stopped trying to win her husband's affection, and instead she said, this time I will praise the Lord. And that baby led us to the line of Christ because Leah put her hope in the Lord instead of looking for love from her husband. That is bold and powerful and courageous to just put all of her hope in the Lord instead of a human person. I think of Jochebed, who I think I did a a Woman of the Bible podcast on her, who was so bold that she took her baby boy and she made him a basket and put him in the Nile River (laughs) where all the other babies were being born to to die, she put her baby boy in there so that he might live. She was so courageous. And Miriam, his sister, who was only eight years old when it happened, but she's the one who spoke up and said, hey, to Pharaoh's daughter, can I go get a Hebrew nurse for you to nurse this baby boy? And then Pharaoh's daughter was like, yeah, that would be awesome. And then Miriam ran and got her own mom to nurse baby Moses for four years, three or four years. I just think that's amazing. I think of Zipporah, Moses' wife, who, I mean, can you imagine being the wife of Moses? And she had to circumcise him, or she had to circumcise their son uh, on the way back to Egypt (laughs) uh, when God called Moses to speak to Pharaoh. And she had chutzpah to do that. She was bold and she was brave and she wanted to obey God. She was amazing. Rahab. Rahab, who had heard about the one true God, and she put her faith in the one true God, even though she was a Gentile woman from Jericho, she put her faith in the one true God, and she insisted that the spies save her and her family, and she wanted to be brought into the family of of Israel, and so God saved her and did bring her into the family of Israel. And not only did he bring her into the family of Israel, but he also put her in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ so that she is a direct ancestor of Jesus. Amazing. I think of Deborah, who is the only woman we have in the book of Judges who was a judge over Israel, and Jael, who she was in battle under the time of Deborah, and she put a tent peg through the enemy's head. She won the battle by putting a tent peg through the enemy's head. I think of Esther, who saved her people. I think of Abigail, who told David, uh, or actually told her husband, now I'm going to get it all wrong. Did she tell her husband that he was doing the wrong thing, or did she tell David that he was doing the wrong thing? Either way, she saved David and all of his men, which was like 600 men who were with him. She saved those men by standing up for what was right, 
for speaking her mind, for doing the right thing. I think of Bathsheba, who, oh man, Bathsheba, I just love her. We don't know, we don't know how much of a choice she had when David called her to his palace to sleep with her that night. We don't know if she had choice in the matter or not, Uh, but she grieved the death of that first baby, and then she was so brave and so bold. While she was grieving the death of her baby, she was also still grieving the death of her husband Uriah, and she yet went on to raise King Solomon, who, yes, later on, turned against God, but for a long time, King Solomon walked with God, became the wisest man and the richest man to ever live on the planet Earth. And and who was his mama? Bathsheba. She raised her son to know the one true God. I mean, the list is long, so I won't keep going on and on. But when First Peter here talks about how this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves, let us realize that this gentle and quiet spirit that he's talking about does not make them a doormat. <laughs> they have wisdom and strength and power and insight and creativity and ingenuity and courage. They are wonderful, wonderful, courageous human beings born in the image of God, mighty women who fight for what's right. So when we read Gentle and Quiet Spirit, we need to take heart in knowing that that God wants us to, to use that gentle and quiet spirit. I don't think a quiet spirit means keeping your mouth shut. We live in turbulent times, but that doesn't mean our spirit has to get turbulent. Our spirit can be calm. And gentle, the word gentle in itself means strength under control. So these women had strength and they knew when to use it and they knew how to control it. That is the kind of woman I want to be. Now this part gets really really tricky, the second half of verse 5. It says, they submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Okay, I really don't have a ton of insight to offer here. I'm so confused by this verse. Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, lowercase Lord, so certainly it just means master. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and you do not give way to fear. So we don't have to be afraid of being submissive to our husbands. The Lord sees us. And, and also being submissive, we have to remember, we always compare scripture with scripture. So being submissive in Ephesians chapter 5, we find out that the, the call from God is for us both to submit to one another. So husbands submit to wives, wives submit to husbands. It's mutual submission is what Ephesians 5 says. There's no fear in that. We are not being called here by any means to submit to anything abusive or anything that is addiction related. That is not what we're being asked to submit here. We're gonna find out in just a minute that what we're being asked to submit to is a a loving husband. So we're not there yet, but it will help us clarify that. So we don't need to give way to fear. I don't understand the part where it says that Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord or her master. Um, Sarah, (laughs) I mean, One of the things that Sarah is well known for 
is she was getting really old, didn't have any kids, and she told Abraham to go sleep with Hagar so that she could have a child through Hagar. And then when Hagar did get pregnant, Sarah began hating her and kicked her out of the family, or actually I think Hagar first ran away, because Sarah was so mean to her and mistreated her, and Hagar was the slave, the slave girl from Egypt. So when it says that Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, of course, that probably just means overall. Like, the incidents with Hagar was like one thing. Probably the whole scheme of her life was an attitude of submissiveness to Abraham. I mean, Abraham had to get up and move, and God didn't tell him where they were going. <laughs> and Sarah went with him. She she submitted to both Abraham and to God's call on Abram's life, and she went with, which is pretty incredible. I don't know. I don't know. Would I do that? If God said to Paul, hey, pack up your family, you guys are moving, and I'm not telling you where you're going, whew, I don't know, you guys. That would be really hard for me to just be like, okay, let's just go, and I would be, I think I would be mad at Paul that he didn't know where he was going. So I guess, see, this is helpful. I'm an, I'm an external processor, so I have to speak out loud. So maybe that's a huge part of what this text is referring to, is that Sarah uh, way back when she was still Sarai in in uh, Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abram, get up and go, and I will show you where you're going. And Abram went, and Sarai went with him. She didn't question him. She didn't get mad at him for not knowing where they were going. She just went with and trusted that Abram was being called by God. We see here a woman who is trusting that Abram is hearing from the Lord and following along. Okay, now I can see it. That was really helpful for me to talk through. I hope that was helpful for you as well, to just trust that the Lord is speaking to your husband and 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 trusting, just trusting, you know, the way that Sarah did. And she didn't give way to fear. So that would also be really important at the end of chapter, verse 6 there, that she didn't give way to fear. She just trusted that the Lord was working on Abram and she went with. <clears throat> okay, let's get to the part where he's going to talk to the husbands because I think this is really important. When we are hearing about being a submissive wife, I was just having coffee with a friend this morning who was telling me about her past and her her marriage that is now over, but uh, just how horribly abusive mentally, emotionally, physically it was. And... I just want to reassure us that in Scripture, when we are being told in Scripture to submit to our husbands, every time it is talked about in Scripture, it is a mutual submission. The husband is being called to something and the wife is being called to something. It's never one-sided in Scripture. So by no means is this asking us to be submissive to somebody who is abusing us. That is not what Scripture is saying. Hear me loud and clear. The woman here is being asked to submit to a husband who is going to love her. The way the Apostle Paul writes it is the husband is going to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is what we are being asked to submit to. Here he says this, husbands, uh, in verse 7, husbands in the same way, in the same way, be considerate. So the same way is, he was always already talking about 
slaves and masters and then he told the wives in the same way because Christ is watching because Christ went before you because Christ set you an example of service we taught that was all in chapter 2 the second half of chapter 2 because Christ set you an example so he's saying husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives treat them with respect as the weaker partner okay Across the board, I've looked at many, many commentaries on this word weaker. Across the board, it appears that it is agreed upon that this is in reference to physical strength. The wife is weaker. I know that there are instances, especially in the workout world we live in today, in the CrossFit world we live in today, there are instances where the wife is a CrossFit beast and she is stronger than her husband and she is a powerhouse and that's awesome. We know that that's not the norm. We also know that CrossFit was not a thing <laughs> 2,000 years ago. And so by and large, the physically weaker, less strong physically partner of a marriage is the woman that's just biology that's all that is okay so across the board commentators agree that this is physically weaker the way that it's written so live with her respect her be considerate of her and so he's going on treat her with respect as the weaker partner and as an heir with you of the gracious gift of life we are co-heirs with Christ. Um, in Galatians, Paul writes that in Christ there's neither male nor female. Like your your male and femaleness does not affect the inheritance you receive. Does that make sense? Like in heaven, I'm still going to be a woman. I believe that fully because my body's going to resurrect and my body is still a female body. So in Christ, in heaven, yes, there will be male and female as far as like my body will still be a female body. But what it means is that in Christ, there's no difference. My inheritance, my salvation to come, what I am an heir of is not dependent on whether or not I am male or female. The inheritance that I receive is the same inheritance that Paul receives. He's a male, I'm a female. We get the same inheritance. In fact, when if we're, we're going to start talking about rewards in heaven and like jewels in our crown for the work that we do on earth, there is every bit of a reason to believe that many women will receive more crowns, more jewels in their crown, more rewards in heaven than men. I mean, think of Mother Teresa. I mean, the woman must have just an amazing amount of jewels in her crown. Or Mary Magdalene, the first woman to ever preach the resurrection. The first person, not just the first woman, the first person to ever preach the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I bet her rewards in heaven are just massive and the jewels in her crown are just sparkling and amazing. It's not like, well, you're a woman, you get less. No, we are co-heirs, male and female. We are co-heirs with Christ of the inheritance and there is no difference of the inheritance between male and female. The inheritance of eternal life is equal for both and we get rewarded based on what we do on earth. All right, so I'm just going to go ahead and read verse 7 again. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I think this is phenomenal. Phenomenal. 
Women, we have to hear this. If we get all uptight about these words to us, about being submissive to our husbands, let us hear this last part that Peter is telling the husbands, make sure you are being considerate to your wife, that you are respecting your wife, that you understand that she is a co-heir with you of eternal life. If you don't understand those things, if you're not treating her like that, your prayers will be hindered. Peter was a married man. We know this from the gospel accounts that he was married. And so I'm sure he took it very seriously that he treat his wife well because he knew firsthand that if I don't, her, my prayers will be hindered. I'm going to read to you from um, David Pawson. I just love the way that he worded this. He says, The sigh of an injured woman come between a husband's prayer and God's hearing. I'm going to say that again. The sighs of an injured woman come between a husband's prayers and God's hearing. If a wife has been injured and is grieving and sighing, groaning in the pain of that abuse, her groans are going to stand between the husband's prayer and God's listening ears. God will hear her in her groans before he hears the husband's prayers if she is being mistreated by her husband. Isn't that beautiful? God has always, always been for the downtrodden. Always. He's always, always on the behalf. He stands on behalf of the downtrodden and the broken and the hurting. That's who our God is. All right, he wraps this part up. Now, if you are following along and in your Bible, there is a section break here. I don't think there should be. Personally, the way it's edited, I think is uh, maybe not the best way of editing because he goes on in verse 8 and he says, finally, which that means it goes together with verse 7. Uh, so I, so we're just going to go on. We're going to go forward, keep moving forward. And he says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So he's talking to the church here, and he's he's talking about to, to the Christian church, this is how you should be with one another. Be like-minded. Throughout, the, throughout Paul's letters, he talks about how we have the mind of Christ. And if we have the mind of Christ, then Christians should be, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we should be like-minded one with another because we have the mind of Christ. So we need to really dial in to that mind of Christ, like tune in to the mind of Christ so that we can be like-minded one with another in the church, be sympathetic with one another, co-sufferers. That's what sympathetic means. It means to suffer alongside. Be co-sufferers with one another. Love each other. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Then he's going to go on and he's going to quote Psalm 34. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So that was from Psalm 34. Verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? 
But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So there he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. And then in verse 15, he gets to one of the most famous verses in the book of 1 Peter. And he says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. All right, I just want to pause here for a moment. I have to think about um, when, when Peter is giving this advice, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I think he's got to be thinking in his mind about when he was not prepared, when he was caught off guard, when Jesus was being taken away into the house of the chief priest, being questioned, being put under trial, and Peter was standing outside of the house of the chief priests and he was warming himself by the charcoal fire and people were like hey aren't you with him aren't you one of his disciples and he was taken off guard he was not prepared to give an answer for the hope that he had and he faltered he failed he failed miserably in fact three times because he wasn't prepared to give an answer he didn't know how to respond to the people who were asking him hey are you with jesus or without jesus He didn't know how to respond. So now he wants to help us not fall into that trap. He wants us to be prepared. When people challenge you about your faith in Jesus, are you ready? Are you ready with an answer? Do you know how to speak about the hope that you have in Christ? Because Peter didn't know how to speak about that hope. He failed miserably. He left and cried bitterly. And through the grace of God, he was brought back. Oh, and that makes me think of... In um, Luke chapter, let's see here, 23. Did I talk about this in the last podcast? Um, In Luke chapter 23, I think, after, um, well, when, when Jesus, okay, right here it is, Luke chapter 22. When Jesus tells his disciples that um, some of you are going to turn against me, And Peter's like, I would never, I would never turn against you, Jesus. I would never deny you, Jesus. Jesus says to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Oh, it's just so wonderful. So Peter's got to be thinking about that here, that Satan asked to sift him like wheat, to sift all of them like wheat. But Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And that's what Peter is doing here as he writes this letter of 1 Peter. He's strengthening the church, the brothers and the sisters. He's strengthening the church by saying, look, you have to have an answer ready. You have to know what to say when you're challenged for your faith in Christ. Don't be unprepared. Get your answers ready. Know how to talk about Jesus. But then he goes on in the end of verse 15, and he says, But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good, for doing evil. So that goes back to chapter 2. We've talked about that, about about the suffering for 
for your faith and suffering for doing good and that God sees unjust suffering. Uh, Throughout the Psalms, we see that God will avenge unjust suffering. He will. He might not do it in our time. In fact, he doesn't usually do it in our time, but he will avenge unjust suffering. And then in verse 18, Peter goes on and he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. This makes me think of in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, it says that Christ suffered once. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's just like going over that, that Jesus only had to suffer on the cross one time once for all, for Christ suffered once for sins. I also love Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So Christ only had to suffer once. Now this is really interesting. The second half of verse 18 It says he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then in verse 19, it says, after being made alive. Okay, now this is so fascinating to me. This is amazing. So after Jesus died, they put his body in the tomb of Joseph, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea. They put Jesus' body in his tomb in the garden. And while that was happening, they sealed up the tomb and everything. And while that was happening, Jesus' spirit was made alive. Now, this is incredible because, okay, Jesus' spirit never died. Um, his, our spirits don't die. Our bodies physically die. And our spirits just pass from into eternity, from, from this earth into eternity. Our spirits just transition from this earth into eternity. But it says here... After being made alive, he was made alive in the spirit. And then verse 19, after being made alive. So that makes me just ponder on that to think, okay, Jesus' spirit never died. His body died. His spirit did not die. But then after Jesus' body died, his spirit was made more alive is the way it sounds. So his spirit became more alive, more fully alive after it was released from the physical body. Isn't that magnificent? It's like what Paul is writing in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 when he says the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal must put on the immortality. So after Jesus' spirit became more alive. Now the text just says after his spirit was made alive, but I I have to think it implies like being made more alive because clearly his spirit was, had been alive, always had been alive. But after it had been made more alive through the death of his body, his spirit was made more alive, he went and he made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Okay, now I think, I think, from my commentary study, doesn't mention a ton about this because it's one of those hard passages that commentators don't really talk a lot about. But these imprisoned spirits would be in Hades or hell. And 
it seems that the spirits that Jesus made proclamation to were those who had been alive while Noah was building the ark, which it seems from Genesis chapter 6 took 120 years. If you flip back there, it says that God gave Noah 120 years or gave mankind 120 years to repent while Noah was building the ark. So these people had been alive while Noah was building the ark and, and had been given invitation to repent during that time, had chosen not to repent during that time. And only eight people, Noah, his wife, their three sons, and three wives, those were the only people who were saved through the ark. And everybody else had been washed away through the flood waters, had died, had perished, and went to either, I don't know if it's Hades or hell, and I also am unclear as if that's the same place. A lot of you maybe have studied a lot more on Hades and hell, and if you want to provide feedback on that, that's great. Um, but Jesus went and gave proclamation to those people who had had that chance to repent but did not repent, and he gave them another chance, it seems, uh, during that time in between his death and his resurrection. And I believe this is why in the Apostles' Creed it says he descended into hell. Because he did. But he didn't descend to hell because he deserved to go to hell. He descended into hell because he was preaching the gospel in hell. Jesus was preaching the gospel while he was there. And I just think that is magnificent. That is the reason he went. You cannot... Uh, you cannot stop Jesus from preaching the gospel. Uh, David Pawson says this, While they conducted the funeral and put Jesus' body in the ground, Jesus was preaching. You can't stop Jesus. His physical death led to a spiritual ministry. I just love that. All right. So he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits those who were disobedient while God um, waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So this is another challenging text because, first of all, it's going to compare Noah's Ark to a baptism, a cleansing, a renewal, a washing that saves them. So the Ark, the, the, the people in the Ark went through the waters of the flood, and through the waters of the flood, they were brought to new life, to a new start. They were brought to like a resurrection of sorts through the flood to start fresh, to start new. And then he's comparing this to baptism and he says, baptism now saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's a clear indication here that baptism is not just symbolic. Baptism is not just a public announcement that you are now going to follow Jesus. Although that's wonderful, but baptism can also be very private, like in Acts chapter 8, when Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, like there's no one there to watch. It's not a public announcement by any means. When Ananias baptizes the Apostle Paul, it's not a public announcement by any means. It's just very private. Uh, when 
uh, the Apostle Paul baptizes the Philippian jailer. We have no reason to believe that was a public event. Like in the scriptures, baptism is not really a public event. It, it is when John the baptizer is baptizing. Um, but baptism throughout the rest of the New Testament is often very private. So it's, it can't possibly be just a public affirmation like, yes, I'm going to affirm, I'm going to uh, publicly confess that I'm following Jesus through baptism. Like baptism does something. Baptism, what it says here, saves us. How does it save us? It's a mystery. Um, I love what my pastor recently taught me is that it's just a conduit of God's grace that that through baptism that God chooses ordinary things like water and then in the Lord's Supper, bread and wine, God chooses ordinary things to bring us his grace, like tangible things that we can touch to be a conduit of the grace of God. I want to read from Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 as we wrap this up and just to think about what baptism what baptism is and does for us because it is such a mystery. I don't have words on my own to teach about it, but the scripture does a great job. <laughs> so I'm just going to read the scripture. Romans 6 says, this is verses 1 through 4, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace can increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism. And so in relation to Noah's Ark, this would be like buried through the floodwaters. We were buried through the floodwaters um, into death. In order that, so I'm back in verse 4 of Romans 6 here, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might be raised to a new life. So baptism, we are we die in Christ. We die with Christ in baptism. We are united to Christ in his death through baptism in order that then we can be raised to new life, just like the ark coming and resting on dry ground. They had been brought through the floodwaters. They had been united with the death of Christ, brought through that, and then were brought together in the resurrection of Christ, starting new, starting fresh, a new life, a new chance, a new opportunity. And and so that is how Peter is going to tie together the the flood account with baptism. And then he just wraps up by giving us this beautiful, beautiful depiction of Jesus. It says that baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So all things now are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 8, we we learn that while Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, he is always interceding for us, praying on our behalf, beseeching on our behalf to the Father. And it is the Father's great delight to listen to the Son as the Son prays on our behalf The Father, it is his delight to grant the prayers of the Son on our behalf. That is who our God is. That is who our God is. Amen and amen. All right, well, that brings us to the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. It has been a joy 
to study alongside of you through this very challenging chunk of scripture. Um, I hope you have a great day and I will be back whenever I can make it back to my basement (laughs) to do another podcast on 1 Peter chapter 4. Have an awesome day. Bye. Bye.